I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. His name is Peter. He doesn't go to this church, but uh, it's a good friend. And we were discussing the current situation, circumstances in the world today, and especially in regard to our country. I know there's lots of conversations go on like that, especially right now. It's been one of those years. There's been a lot going on, obviously. The pandemic, which continues. The economic repercussions. Folks out of work. The civil unrest that we experienced throughout the summer. Now the election turmoil, continual fear of war, and the whole thing with Iran. It just, the list goes on and on and on. And so we were conversing and talking about our concerns and so forth. And at some point in the conversation, and I suppose we've probably all done this in the last few months, at some point in the conversation I said, well, at least we know the Lord's in control of it all. This uh, evoked a response from my friend Peter. He said, as best I can remember, he said, I know God is in control. I believe that. But how is he in control? What does it mean when we say that? Well, that's a good question. Good couple of questions there. And I started to give him an answer, and we, we were interrupted shortly thereafter. And probably well that I was, because I'm not sure I would have given a very good answer off the top of my head. But the question remained and has just kind of bounced around in my mind since. For I too would like, I would have to say like Peter, well, yeah, I believe God's in control, but it doesn't necessarily mean I can see it or I can put my hand on it. So I'd like to address that topic this morning. Does, does God have it all under control? And if he does, and we believe he does, but if he does, how, how does he exercise his sovereignty? And so that means that we're going to have to spend a little time introducing this whole subject this morning, and this will be just part one of our message here from Acts 17, 24 to 26. It will continue to next week as well. But we'll get a good start on it this week. And what we're going to have to do is start with a general, some general comments about the will of God. And then we're going to like narrow it down to the specific aspect of the will of God that, that bears on these questions. And then eventually we'll move into what Paul says about all this in Acts chapter 17. So first of all, notice with me, there are three aspects to God's will. Or you might say three parts to God's will. There is what we call the sovereign will of God. Then there is the perceptive will of God and the dispositional will of God. Now, just so we understand, because we don't use this terminology, this is all theological terms, and 
We just want to make them a little practical here. <clears throat> when we say the sovereign will of God, we mean simply this, that, that everything that God ordains or determines to do, He does, and it, it's going to happen. Whatever He intends, it will come to pass. Author Pink in his book, The Attributes of God, says this. He says, the, the sovereign will of God, in reference to it, he says, Subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent, God does as He pleases, always as He pleases. None can hinder Him. So His own word expressly declares, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46, verse 10. The perceptive will of God is that which God has revealed to us. It is the Word of God. Obviously, His will is for us to be obedient and to, to do all that He's told us to do and not to do. That's revealed, that's plain, that's, that's in black and white for us. And so we call the perceptive will of God the revealed will of God, whereas the sovereign will of God is the secret will of God. We don't know what the sovereign will of God is necessarily going forward. Now, we know a lot about prophecy, but that falls under the perceptive will of God because He's revealed it to us. But there's other things about life and, and history going forward we do not know. But God's in control of it. So the sovereign will of God in that sense is a secret will, and it's only known after the fact. The per perceptive will of God is that which He's already told us, and we know what His will is from the Word. The third aspect of God's will is what we call the dispositional will of God. Now, the dispositional will of God means there are things which God desires, there are things which God uh, would be pleased about, but He does not force man to do those things. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 says, Who desires, speaking of God, that's the who here, who desires all men to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth. But because God desires for all men to be saved does not mean that all men are going to be saved. Because some will reject Him, you see. So His desire, His disposition, His wish, his what would please Him the most is if all would come to Him, but many will not, obviously. So 1 Timothy 2.4 is not teaching universal salvation by any stretch of the imagination. The dispositional will of God does not necessarily line up with the sovereign will of God. They can be two different things. Now, with these in mind, we want to concentrate this morning and narrow things down to talk about the sovereign will of God. For herein is where we need to answer the questions before us this morning. The word sovereign means the one who is king, the one who is mighty, the one who is powerful, the one who is able to do what he wants to do. And in God's case, that is anything and everything because he's all-powerful. The all-powerful king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. And so we want to narrow this down this morning here as far as our discussion is concerned, to that aspect. Now, there are two parts to the sovereign will of God that we have got to distinguish in our minds. 
There is what we call the efficacious will of God and the permissive will of God. But they are both part of the sovereign will of God. Now, when we use the word efficacious, it really means that an action is taken that is effective. So, the efficacious will of God includes everything that God decides to do, and He He brings it about. He's active in doing that. The permissive will of God means God is passive. He doesn't make it happen, but He allows it to happen. He permits it to happen. And here's where we have a lot of our questions. How can God be in control of something He permits and somebody else is involved doing what they want to do? Now, as far as the efficacious will of God, there's a few scriptures you probably need to uh, jot down here, or at least look at on screen. The first one is Isaiah 46.10, which I already mentioned, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46.10. Then there's Romans 12 and verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. In Him, that is in God, capital H, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things are worked to be an outcome of His will. That's the sovereign will of God. The efficacious part of that is the next thing we want to look at. And for that, we want to go to the book of Genesis, chapter 50 and verse 20. You remember the story, Joseph, because his brothers were jealous of him, sold him into slavery and uh, took his clothing and dipped it in the, in the blood of an animal, took it to his father and said some animals killed Joseph. They, they sold Joseph uh, into slavery, basically, to a caravan who carried him to Egypt. And he was purchased by uh, Potiphar, probably a royal title rather than a name, Potiphar's house. And he was a slave in Potiphar's house, and God blessed him. And he was so good at managing Potiphar's affairs, he rose to be the you know, the, really the manager of everything that Potiphar had. He so trusted Joseph. And then, of course, Joseph's, uh, wife, uh, threw a, you know, a monkey wrench in everything by, uh, propositioning Joseph and he refused and she got mad. She tells Potiphar a lie. Potiphar has him thrown in prison. He's in prison and a terrible place and a dungeon, a hole in the ground, but God blesses him. The first thing you know, Joseph's running to prison. Joseph, extraordinary individual, by the way. An extraordinarily blessed of God. And from that position in the prison, uh, Pharaoh puts some of his uh, staff in there for whatever reason. Joseph interprets dreams, and it comes true. And eventually, one of them tells Pharaoh about it, who is confused himself about a dream he had. And uh, he calls from Joseph from prison. He interprets a dream. Uh, Pharaoh puts him in charge of taking care of the uh, necessary preparations for the famine, which the dream indicate was indicated was coming. 
And Joseph is like number two in the whole country of Egypt, and that was the world power at that time. So he goes from being rejected of his brothers, sold into slavery, put into prison. You know, God allowed his brothers to be jealous of him and sell him into slavery. And God allowed Potiphar's wife to lie about him, get him thrown into prison. And God allowed him to be in the perfect spot because of those sinful actions. You see, when God permits or allows something, he can allow disobedience, he can allow sin, he can allow evil, and he does. But it doesn't mean he's lost control. For though Joseph experienced evil and disobedience and, and, and you know, jealousy and all those things and was mistreated horribly, God worked it all into a plan that put him in the number two place in Egypt where he could save many people from this famine, including his own family that mistreated him. So there we see the permissive will of God. God would not have had his brothers be jealous or to do those things, but they were permitted, and yet God was in control of the whole process. So, let me illustrate further. The last few years, as we went on a family vacation with my daughter, husband, kids, somebody, I don't know who, I'm not going to point any finger, somebody always brings a 500-piece puzzle, picture puzzle, and puts it on the table. Now, I do not like working 500-piece puzzles. I like seeing them once they're done, if somebody else does it, but I don't really like doing it. It's tedious, it is time-consuming, I don't have the patience for it, but I mean, you're on vacation, you're relaxing, you're taking it easy, you walk by that puzzle and you look down and say, it can't be that hard. So the first thing you know, I'm trying to put these little puzzle pieces together. But I always turn up the picture on the front of the box. I say, well, you know, we already know what it's supposed to look like. How difficult can this be? Very difficult, I'm telling you. I prefer those 12-piece puzzles the toddlers use. That's what I like. God's plan, God's sovereign will, can be illustrated by a 500-piece picture puzzle. Now, unlike the, the, the fact that we have a picture on the front of the box, God provides no picture of our life. But it doesn't mean He doesn't have a plan. He has a perfect plan. And most of the pieces that God fits together in your life and mine and in the, in the, the, the uh, eras of history and the epics of nations and, and all these things, most all the puzzle pieces that he puts together are his efficacious will of God. Maybe I shouldn't say the most of them, but many of them at least, are things that he literally brings about by his own doing. But there's also many pieces that are permissive pieces, the permissive will of God that also fit into that puzzle. And so we sometimes spend our time looking at the things God permits that includes disobedience and evil and injustice and all those things we we hate and we worry about how they're going to affect us and our families and our nation and all the rest, but yet they are part of God's sovereign will. Because just like in the case of Joseph, he can bring about good. He can bring about the overall plan 
through it all. We don't know how. We can't really conceive of it, but he is God. And we can find examples of it, such as in the life of Joseph. Now, since the sovereign will of God is unrevealed, we don't know what it is entirely until after the fact. The permissive part is an indirect fulfillment of his intentions. The efficacious part is a direct result of his work. But it all only comes into focus and it becomes observable and understandable after the fact. And I'm afraid for most all of us that means when I say after the fact, when we're in heaven looking back on it all. Although we can see some parts of it even in this life looking back, obviously. So with that background and understanding then, what we're going to talk about today has to do with God's sovereign will. The part that he does himself and the part that he allows or permits to take place. I'm not going to, I can't tell you how they all fit together going forward. I can look at an example like Joseph looking back and we can begin to fit it together. But I can't tell you for you and me and for our families and, and for our descendants and for our nation and for our world. I can't really picture it in advance. No one can. But we can see here in Acts chapter 17 some very important principles that Paul mentions. Now, let me set up here the context again. Paul has fled his most previous work because of threats of the Jews, Jews and the unbelievers there. And uh, he has went to, to Athens, which is the seat of the Greek pantheon, the, uh, the whole uh, scope of all those multiple gods the Greeks worshipped. And they were displayed, uh, images of them were displayed, idols of them were displayed all over the city. And Paul is incensed by this ignorance, this religiousness, religiosity but ignorance. And they even had a, a one, one sculpture, one idol there that was inscribed uh, to the unknown God. And Paul basically says to them, he says, yeah, yeah, there's an unknown God to you, and I want to tell you about him. And he, he, he after talking in general terms and getting them sucked into the topic, he brings them to the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. And a few believe, a lot reject, but a few believe. But in the midst of this whole discussion with them, his speech on Mars Hill, or his sermon, or his witness, whatever you want to call it, verses 24 to 26 contain some information that is crucial for us in understanding how God does control what happens in this world. He does so in various ways, and we're going to look at two of them this morning, three more next Sunday. And then by the third Sunday, we'll really, you know, apply all of this to the Christmas story and try to get it down on a more personal and practical level for our lives. But number one, the first way that he maintains control and orchestrates his control is this. He determines what every person is like. 
He determines basically who everyone is, what we are. Look at it at verse 24. In speaking to them, he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. You see, the Greeks brought their idea of God, gods in their case, plural, they brought their idea of the gods, you know, in a sense, down more to their level. As if they somehow needed man. And Paul says, the God who made everything doesn't need us. By the way, he starts with creation. You just want to speak to somebody about their need of salvation in this world today. And they are atheists or religious in some other sense. You need to begin with creation. Because if they don't accept the fact that man is a created being, it's going to be really difficult to get them to understand anything beyond that. That's right where Paul starts. God who made it all. God who made the world and everything in it. So he begins with God's creation. Now, he created the world. Go back to Genesis 1. He created man. Adam and Eve. Put them in the garden. He scooped up the elements of the earth, created Adam, breathed into him the breath of life, took from Adam as he put him to sleep, and took from Adam and created Eve. God is the creator. He created the world we live in, and he created us. Now, he created Adam directly by taking the very elements that he had created in constructing man and breathing life into him. He created you and me by means of procreation. But that doesn't mean God isn't involved in it. It doesn't mean God didn't create us. For example, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. Speaking of God, David here is speaking to God. And the you is capitalized for that reason. He's speaking to God. He says, for you, for you, God, formed my inward parts and covered me with my skin, skin, muscles, all that, in my mother's womb. God did that. I will praise you, he says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. There's an intimate knowledge between God and his creation, even in the womb. My frame, says David, was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, you know, until you're born, you're really held in secret except for them ultrasounds. And believe me, that doesn't show you what a baby's really going to look like. I mean, you get a kind of an outline. But my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, he says, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. God, you're in heaven, you're in the highest parts, but I was wrought down here. Your eyes saw my substance, says God, or says David. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, get this, in your book, they were all, they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet 
there were none of them. Before I was born and lived one day outside my mother's womb in this world, my life, my days were fashioned and, and placed in the sovereign will of God. Now, if that doesn't bring us some joy and peace, it should. We don't live in a world of chance. We live in a world sometimes it seems like chance overcomes us or misfortune afflicts us. But we don't live in that kind of world because God is in control. That means that the person we are physically, God created. Some people live a long life and are very healthy and strong. And some people, even from a very young age, are unhealthy and, and weak and afflicted. We have certain physical capacities that God gave us and and certain abilities that God wove into our very being. Some things we can excel at, some things we cannot. Even our personality God constructed. They say there's two basic personalities, introverts and extroverts. And everything else, as far as dividing it further, comes from those two. And those people that, in most cases, rise to be well-known and perhaps powerful, probably the more extroverts. Not necessarily. It doesn't mean they're the best in that position, but they usually are held up that way. Just like Saul was, by the way, back in the Old Testament, King Saul. He had no qualifications worthwhile for a king at all, except the fact that, you know, in the people's minds anyway, except from the fact that he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else, and a good-looking fella. Not, not altogether different from the way people choose their leaders here today. So our physical makeup, our, our personalities, our abilities, capabilities, they all define who we are, and what we lack in those areas limit what we can do. And limit where we can function best. So God, even with the unsaved world, and He does this with everybody, the unsaved people and the saved people. So even in the unsaved world, there's evil people out there, but God has placed limitations on them. There's some very evil people that never had the personality or the abilities to really rise to leadership, and that's really good. Then God also made the world. He made the world and everything in it. We're everything in it. We're part of everything in it. But He also made the world we live in, our environment. And I'm not talking just about, I'm not talking about whether it's, it's warm or cold outside or whether it's a storm or whether the sun's shining. I'm talking about the circumstances of our world that we are living in, the, the political and the cultural and uh, the social pressures and circumstances of our environment. He takes us, he formed in a certain way, in a specific way, in a unique way, and he puts us into a certain set of circumstances that he knows how we're going to react to those circumstances. And I'm talking broadly here about, again, saved and unsaved. 
Think about the Apostle Paul for a moment. Before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul. And Saul was a rabbi. Saul was a Pharisee. Saul was trained at the feet of the best Pharisee and uh, rabbi in that day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And he was, he was perfectly suited to be what he was, a Pharisaic rabbi who was so sure he was right, was willing to persecute Christians. And he, he even was consenting to the stoning of... What's his name? <laughs> what was that? Stephen. Right, thank you. He, he was prepared of God to be the, the worst he could possibly be for the church, but even God used that. For he used Paul to scatter the brethren who were all congregating together in Jerusalem instead of scattering out to spread the word to Judea and Samaria and the other parts, most parts of the earth. And then as, as Paul was chasing them, following after them to persecute them further on his road to Damascus, he met the risen Savior. And he was wondrously saved. And guess who was absolutely perfectly prepared to be the apostle, Paul? Who better to turn the whole world upside down and impact the whole of the known world with the gospel than Paul, the man who once persecuted believers, the man who was perfectly prepared in all that God had written and all that could be understood about the Old Testament and the law, and yet he said, the law is no more. Christ has come. He makes us who we are, what we're like. But then secondly, here's another principle. God determines how long we live. There's another limitation He puts on everybody that lives in this world. Let's look at it. God who made the world and everything in it. There's His creative work. Now let's drop down to the latter part of verse 25. It says, since he gives to all life and breath. You see that? Since he gives to all life and breath. Now we're going to stop right there as far as the text goes and take it up there next week. But for point number two, what he's talking about here when he says he gives everybody life and breath, he gives everybody that's born in this world Life and breath. Now that's present tense in the verb. It means God is giving life and breath, giving life and breath, giving life and breath, giving life and breath to every person who's born, to every person that comes along. Each one of them receives life and breath from God. Life means that He literally breathed into them the, the life that comes from Him, like He did from Adam. Now again, through procreation, but yet it's the same Miraculous result. When he formed Adam and took the dirt from the ground and made him, he breathed into him the breath of life. He gives everyone life, but then it says he gives everyone breath, which means 
If you don't have breath, you don't have life. You know, you understand that, right? He gives everyone life as they come along. And then he determines how long we're going to have breath and partake of that life. So he determines the scope of our existence. Look at Psalm chapter, or Psalm number 90, verse 12. Oh, okay. I did not, I did not clue my guys in on that one. That's my fault. I'll, we'll turn there. That's okay. Uh, I think it's important enough to do that. My oversight. Psalm 90 and verse 12. Here the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Why would we number our days? Because God's already fixed them. They have a number. They have a limit. Our ability to do good or to do evil is limited by the length of our life. God permits some people to do evil for a certain amount of time, but they, their time, their evil always comes to an end. For example, Haman, who tried to have all the Jews killed. In Esther's day, Esther chapter 7, verse 10, Haman, who wanted to make sure that the one he hated most, Mordecai, hung on a gallows, was actually placed on that same gallows himself. And Haman's evil came to an end unexpectedly. How about Herod? Chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 19. Now remember, the wise men came to Jerusalem inquiring about who was born king of the Jews. And Herod said, well, you go and find him, come back and tell me where he's at. And God warned the wise men not to go back by way of Jerusalem. And Herod was angry and he had all the male children up to two years of age in the Bethlehem region slaughtered. Mary Joseph and the Christ child had to flee to Egypt because they realized that they were the target. But you know what happened after that? Herod died. Herod died in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. There was a limit to his evil. And then they came back. How about in Acts chapter 12? Here's a different Herod. You know, Herod was, the, it was a title. And so one Herod died, another in the family of Herod, and he was the next Herod and so on. There's another Herod in chapter 12 of Acts. And he had just placed Peter into prison. And he had him chained to Roman guards and in the depths of the prison and the doors all locked. And the angel showed up one night and told old Peter, Peter's sleeping away. I mean, that's how much peace he had. He's sound asleep. And the angel has to poke him and wake him up. And, and he gets up and the chains fall off. The doors swing open and he walks out. 
he goes to the house where they're praying for him and he can't even get in because the maid who opens the door sees it's Peter so excited. She goes back and tells everybody Peter's at the door. And I said, hey, don't bother us. We're praying for Peter to get out of prison. He's already standing at the door. And Herod determined after that to kill Peter. But shortly after that, he had a big public appearance. And he stood before his constituents in bright and shining clothing, and the sun reflected off of it. And some said, oh, it's a god. About that time, God said, that's enough. And Herod fell dead. Because God put a limit on his evil. And God shut it down. So there is the permissive will of God running headlong into the efficacious will of God. The sovereign will of God is <laughs> my turn to act. Pow! No more Herod. And then there's the Antichrist who will come on the scene in the prophetic future, who will afflict many, especially in the second half of the tribulation period. But at that great last battle, the battle of Armageddon, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and the Antichrist is dispatched to the lake of fire because his evil had a limit. His life only would last but so long and God determined how long? And Napoleon had his Waterloo, and then Hitler killed himself in that bunker, and Saddam Hussein was found in a hole over in the Middle East. In every case, God brought evil to an end because their lives were limited, and their scope of their evil was limited. Now we're going to go on to three more things next week. But first I want you to go to one verse with me, Colossians Chapter 3 and verse 15 as we conclude. Here Paul says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's a lot of things we can be concerned about, a lot of things we ought to be concerned about, but there's nothing to be panicked over. And there's a big difference between the two. Scripture says, let peace rule in your heart. Let the peace of God be the one that rules your heart. Not the fear and the concerns about what evil people do or what the world situation is. Let peace rule in your hearts and be thankful. Not an easy thing to do. We'll talk more about how to do that as we go forward, but I got an assignment for you this week. I want you to take a piece of paper sometime this week when you sit down to read your Bible or just have a few moments to spare. And I want you to make a list of things that you're most concerned about right now in this world and in your life. At least three or four things. Five or six, seven, eight's even better. But don't, get, don't go beyond that because then you're just going to get too focused on everything that could go wrong. But, uh, but make a short list, if you will. Make a short list of things you're really concerned about, really worried about. And do me one more favor. Do it in pencil. And bring it with you next Sunday. And I'll show you why you need to bring it and why I want you to write it in pencil. That's just a little mystery. 
We'll talk more about it next week. But this week, suffice to say, we need to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. And as we understand how God does control everything and how He is sovereign, that is more possible as we just understand who God is and what He does. And that's the real purpose why we're looking at this together. 